Hey. <laughs> uh, after, after an endless march through the book of Genesis, we have more or less completed that, and um, we're going to do a, a new series here for the month of November. Uh, the series is called The Rich Harvest, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the parables of Jesus that deal with harvesting um, couple of reasons for this. One, you know, it's sort of thematic. It's harvest time, you know, Thanksgiving and all of that. Another is that a good diet of Scripture uh, should be a balanced diet. And um, according to, I think, the USDA or Food and Drug Administration, we're supposed to have a balanced diet in our regular lives. Um, and while that tends to make most of us really obese, the idea behind it is actually really good. The idea being that there are things that we want to eat and things that we don't. And things that, in order to be, have like a good meal, we should have, you know, a lot of that stuff. And so, uh, when you take that sort of analogy to scripture, the life, your life in scripture should be balanced with Old Testament, with New Testament, with texts that are really fun and encouraging, and texts that are a little bit frightening and scary. Uh, you don't, you don't want to have like an imbalanced understanding of who God is because, uh, and that's what will happen if you ignore different parts of scripture. And so, one of the things that um, I try to do is as we're thinking about uh, the year and moving through the Bible, that we, we kind of get something of everything so that we're really seeing all the different facets and, and, and in, in parts of who God is and what he's like. Um, and so to that end, we've been in the Old Testament for a while. We need to get uh, to the New Testament. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Jesus' parables of harvest. The second reason for that is because that right now we're in a, in a place in our church life where we are really being very intentional about being part of God's harvest, bringing in uh, new people who don't believe, introducing them to the gospel, taking those who are a little bit familiar with faith and building them up so that they know some of the more important doctrines and, and they can actually live lives that are pleasing to God. And, uh, and, and so that, that theme is throughout Jesus' harvest parables. And so, um, without further ado, let's uh, read one of Jesus' One of people's least favorite parables of Jesus, uh, Matthew 21 to 16. In your pew Bibles, I think it's uh, page 520, but it's also on the back of your note sheets. Uh, I didn't really mess with the New King James here. Um, there's going to be some places where I'll bring some of the things out from Greek, but in, in general, this is a, just a great, easy-to-read translation. Jesus says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now he went out about the third hour, this is about nine o'clock, early in the morning means about six, third hour is nine, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever's right, I'll give you. So they went. Again, he went about the sixth, that's uh, noon, and the ninth, that's three o'clock, three p.m., and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, this is right around 5 p.m., just as uh, dusk is about to hit. Around the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Well, no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call all the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last, the ones who came last, um, all the way down to the first. And when those who, were came, who came were hired around the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would get more. But they likewise received each a denarius. 
When they'd received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal? You treated them equal to us who have borne the burden of, and the heat of the day? But he answered one of them and said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what's yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful? Is it not legal for me to do what I wished with my own things? Or is your evil eye, your eye evil because I'm good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Is God fair? Because it sure doesn't seem like it. This is one of those uh, kind of distressing parables. Because, you know, if you think about you're just sort of thinking about what God's like. People assume that God's just, right? God meets out to each what they deserve, right? I mean, that seems like something that a good, fair judge would do. And yet, no matter how you spin this parable, the story is one of unfairness. It just doesn't look fair. And if this is really about the kingdom of God, then are we saying that somehow the kingdom of God isn't fair? I think as we uh, journey through the text and we pay close attention, well, actually, uh, there's a lot here. There's many layers to this text. It seems kind of like a simple story, a, a twisted one, a weird one, but pretty simple. There's actually a lot going on. If we pay close attention to the text, I think we're going to, you know, that's going to come out. And we're going to actually get some really, like a very interesting, very practical way that we can live kingdom lives today when we walk out, or begin on a path towards kingdom lives, lives that are probably really contrary to the way that we are naturally disposed to live and act. So let's uh, take a look. At the very beginning here, notice this, for the kingdom of heaven is like, this is important, just in general, when we're talking about Jesus' parables, uh, parables, sometimes people don't quite know how to read them. Uh, The key is to remember that a parable is almost always two things. One, it's an allegory. We'll discuss that in a second. And, and the other is that it has a general kingdom principle. Okay? So what I mean by allegory is, um, has anyone here read or seen several of the movies, The Chronicles of Narnia? Chronicles of Narnia, based on the work by C.S. Lewis. Chronicles of Narnia, very popular children's stories. Um, in The Chronicles of Narnia, the, the story is basically about this uh, magical lion named Aslan, who um, does some various things. And, and really, if you're reading these books to your children— you can explain to them, whenever you see Aslan, think King Jesus. Okay? Aslan is a symbol for King Jesus. Right? So you can just replace them. Now, because Aslan's aligned in the story, he can do things that the real historical King Jesus couldn't, but he symbolizes or represents Jesus. That's allegory. It's where there's a reference, a historical reference. The characters and the things of the story actually match something in history that's real. Okay? And in Jesus' parables almost always do this. The second thing, however, is not only do they do that, but they also have kind of a general kingdom of God principle. One that's a little bit weird for us. One that turns our lives upside down. Because the kingdom, the way the kingdom works is opposite. It's upside down to the way that we work. So that's the first thing in your note sheets. Jesus' parables usually use allegory to symbolize specific people and things, but also feature a general kingdom upside down principle. So let's go back to the text. And get some of these allegorical references down. Early in the morning, he goes out to hire laborers for the vineyard. First, notice that, uh, the, that God is a winemaker. Um, vineyards are, they, pro- they feature prominently in, um, 
in the, uh, in the biblical text. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, vineyards are meant to uh, sort of symbolize something like um, God's gracious fruit, right? Like a, it's lush and rich and wealthy. And the idea being the kingdom of God is, is like that too. And uh, for those of you who um, know how grapes are harvested, it is no longer like this, which is, that's not true. I don't know, I mean, I'm not super familiar, but my understanding is you can spend like hundreds of dollars for a bottle of wine. Here's the key. Apparently, any wine that's like $70 or more um, has been hand, the, the grapes have been hand harvested. Very much in keeping with um, the sort of what, what happened in Jesus' day. Uh, today, modern vintners will, um, in order to jack up the price of their wine, they'll, uh, they'll have people literally go around with clippers and, and clip the grapes. Uh, more rational Americans who are interested in making like a, a quick profit use these bad boys. This is the Pelenk. It's the premier uh, grape harvester. These things are sweet. Um, they, this is cool. It doesn't really matter, but it's cool. What they do is they, they go uh, down the, vin- the line, and, and they, they, they've been attuned to vibrate the vine at just the right frequency to make um, the grape stems depart from the, the main stem. It's crazy. So they vibrate, the, and then the leaves don't come off, but the, the grape clusters fall onto, like a, uh, onto a, um, a, like a conveyor belt, then dumps them into. Fascinating. Uh, this is a gift of America to the world. 1960, uh, Americans invented this. Um, and this actually kind of led directly to the, uh, the great wine re- uh, revolution of the 1980s in California wines uh, because they were able to mass produce in a way that the French could not. A little historical tidbit there for you. Um, the point is, is that, is that uh, the idea is not that um, grape harvesting is um, somehow like, you know, super back-breaking labor. It's hard. But it's not like, um, it's not as bad as some types of physical labor in the ancient world. However, that said, the fact that they're harvesting grapes means that this is taking place at a very specific time during the year, the harvest time. During the harvest time, for one or two months in the late summer, early fall, Jewish people work from 12 to 12. These are long days because they got to get all the grapes in. These grapes are going to you know, make wine. They're also going to feed people, and they're going to be the sustenance for the land for the entire year. So for 12 hours a day, for a couple of months, these are long, serious days. But that's not the normal life. The next thing, if you are a, uh, a vintner, you're actually only hiring these people for, like I said, two months out of the year. So think about what's going on. Uh, the, the vineyard owner is going into the town. He sees a whole pool of day laborers. These people, by definition, are the very people who do not have any other means of providing for their family. They are at the lowest end of the economic sector. In fact, what they're, um, well, we'll see in just a second. Let's go back to the text really quick. Notice he agrees with the early morning 6 6 a.m. laborers for a denarius a day. What's a denarius? I have a modern-day example of a denarius. There it is. A Benjamin, more or less. Um, depends on, on how you think about $100. But the idea is, is that if you got $100 a day, then you would, depending on where you live and how you live, presumably be able to provide food for your family. And maybe if you're very savvy and disciplined, save up something for the future. Okay? Uh, now, granted, here in Southern California, that would have to probably be more like $1,000 a day. But, you know, if you're in like Ohio 
Or um, what are some of those other states that we have? Like uh, Wisconsin. Illinois. Yes. Arkansas. That's not real. Come on. Arkansas. Sky. Yeah, so if, you, if you're in one of these other places where normal people live, $100 a day will be like a functional way of survival, right? The idea being that there's all these day laborers, and the vineyard owner is coming in, and he's agreeing with them to basically give them a sustainable wage. A living wage is the, the, the I mean, even that's not exactly right, but that's kind of the, the word, the, the, the buzzword that gets used nowadays. Now, if you're paying attention to this language, okay, and you hear this early in the morning. A vineyard owner, vineyards, again, throughout the Old Testament, a vineyard, Israel is a vineyard, and God is the owner. And the Israelite people are the ones who work God's land for him. Early on in the morning, so at the very, very beginning of history, like early on in history, uh, the God, the vineyard owner, comes in and he makes a deal with a small group of people and says, hey, if you come work my land, I'm going to give you a fair wage. I'm going to take care of you. It's like singing your note sheets. Early in history, the vineyard owner, God, agrees to take care of the basic needs of his laborers, Israel. This, um, this parable is allegorical about Israel. It's about the people of Judea. It has some very contemporary uh, application, as we'll see, but it really is Jesus is speaking in this section of Scripture to Jewish people. And some of the people who are there are people who are very jealous for being Jews. They've been good Jews all their lives. And they, they see themselves in line with the very first Jews who were called by God, and, and they see themselves as direct descendants of him. And the denarius is a basic need. God's going to be fair. He's going to care for you. The idea being like God makes a deal with Israel. You do your part, I'll do my part. Back to the text. Uh, Really quickly here we can see what happens um, as as you picked up when we first read it. So like there's the early workers and they're in the field. And then there's the nine o'clockers. That's the the first time we we get the, the word idle. Right, the nine o'clockers are standing idle in the marketplace. It's not. Uh, that's. We'll talk more about that. But third hour, so nine o'clock, uh, and then notice what, what uh, the owner says here. Doesn't promise them a denarius. He says, "Whatever is right, I will give you." The Greek there is um, dikaios. It's the word that usually gets translated as righteousness or justice. All right, whatever is right or just, I will. I will give you. So far, so good. It's a normal story. It makes a lot of sense. As you're listening, you expect these guys to get a denarius minus three hours or whatever the, the, the small difference is. It goes on. The, the same thing happens. It's uh, on in the text. It goes on the sixth, the ninth hour. Same thing. Hey, come over here and work and I'll give you whatever's just, whatever's right, whatever is fair. Uh, this is really just... Um, Jesus kind of telling sort of the story of Israel, right? Like, um, Israel, over time, went through all kinds of ups and downs. And if you've been here for a while, you know we talked about the remnant last week. Throughout all the ups and downs of Israel, there's always been a small group of Jewish people who've stayed faithful, and they've been God's laborers, right? And so down throughout history, they, they've been with God, doing what God's doing. If you're thinking in terms of the way that the Jewish people in Jesus' day did, they are expecting the end of the day. They expect to be living at the end of the day when the Messiah comes, when God fulfills his kingdom all in all. They are all of them expecting to be the ones who are there at the end of the, of the labor day. 
So when you, when you hear these hours, you're, you're thinking in terms of the history of Israel, and really it's coming to an end when the Messiah is going to come and the kingdom is going to come. And that's what his Jewish listeners are, are expecting. And so uh, you can just add in your note sheets here. Um, over time, Israel expands, goes up and down, and God promises to be fair, just, right, to those who are gathered into his people. Again, makes a lot of sense. You were with me through some of these tough times. I'm going to be fair to you at the end. Presumably the people at the beginning have worked the hardest, so they're the best. But uh, you guys are good too. Everyone's. And then the story takes a turn for the crazy. Five o'clock, sun's going down. There's others standing idle. Notice the idol gets repeated, repeated a few times here. He's like, why are you standing here? Their, their answer is probably a lie. Well, it's not a lie, but it's, it's hiding some of the truth. No one hired us. Hmm. So these guys have been sitting there in the middle of the market all day, doing nothing. Remember, it's not just the, you know, this is the time in Israel where, where it's a contracted labor supply, to use contemporary economic terms. That everybody needs help right now. And these are the guys who nobody wants. I have an artist rendering of these people um, in the con- contemporary context. Uh, when I was, you know, back from, from college, um, quote-unquote, looking for a job um, for the summer, I remember, you know, I had long hair and an earring, and I dressed in baggy clothes because that was cool. And, uh, and I just remember my dad being like, who would hire you? You're garbage. And secretly I was like, that's the plan. <laughs> There's a lot of important things that need to be done during the day. Those video games will not play themselves. And, uh, look, if I don't get my 13 hours of sleep a day, I'm a mess. So, these are the kinds of people that are there at 5 p.m. being like, hire me, but don't. <laughs> Like, oh, yeah, oh, hire me for an hour? Sure, why not? I mean, because they're basically avoiding going home at this point. Nobody expects to get hired at 5 p.m. No day laborer out there is like, oh, it's 5. Now I'm, now I'm sure to get a job. No, these guys are just like, they've been chilling all day. Um, they probably expect to eat boots, a boot soup for dinner, because they've got nothing. Um, they're, they're peasants. All these people are peasants. Um, and yet, in this weird twist... Uh, the, the owner goes out and says, you guys get in here too. Put in a real back-breaking hour of labor. But then, but it's not totally crazy because the, the, the owner says, and whatever's fair, I'll pay you. Who are these lazy latecomers, these, these precocious teenagers if you're thinking in terms of Jesus' day and you're thinking it, things are getting close, Jesus maybe himself is the Messiah and he's coming and he's explaining the kingdom. He's, he's getting the kingdom ready to go. Um, and, and all these faithful Jews are like, oh, sounds good. But then they see who Jesus is gathering to himself at this late hour as the kingdom's about to take full, you know, come in its fullness. And who's he gathering? Prostitutes, tax collectors, Gentiles. These are people that, um, you know, if you're, if you're like a faithful, hardworking Jew, you're like, oh, you're, they're terrible. The Gentiles, they don't know how to worship God. They're dirty. They, uh, they eat pork. They don't obey any of the rules that God set up for us. 
to say nothing of tax collectors and prostitutes. Prostitutes, I mean, what are they doing all day? They're not making an honest wage, certainly. And the tax collectors, they're, they're, they're cheats. They're, they're traitors to their country. The, you're, gonna, you're asking these people to be part of the kingdom too? But okay, maybe that's fine. Because you promised, landowner, that you're only going to give them what's fair. An hour of work, they're terrible people, they're going to get just a little bit. No. No. And then the worst part of the parable, the denouement, um, <laughs> the landowner, it's really, it's, it's really kind of sick the way he does it. He like lines them all up. <laughs> and he gets the guys who just got there. And he, and he pays them a full day's wage. And so the other guys are watching this happen. He could have done it different. He could have started with the guys who'd been working all day and given them their denarius and sent them on their way, right? So they wouldn't see what's happening. But he doesn't. He's like, he's like I want them to make sure they see what I'm doing. Kind of a, kind of a jerk move, but that's the way it happens. And listen to the grumbling. I love this. Uh, in modern translations uh, where it says, uh, you've made them equal to us, modern translations will try to smooth that and say, you've paid them the same. This is a very literal translation. It, I mean, literally these guys say, you've made them equal to us. Okay? Uh, trying to smooth that is a bad choice because what are they really concerned about? Right? What are these guys who've been working for 12 hours really mad about? Is it the money? Really? No, it's the fact that these lazy scumbags are being treated the same as us. You're showing them the same honor, the same value, when they're clearly not valuable. Nobody wanted these guys. At the very least, they should be like second-class citizens, right? Look at us. We've borne the burden and the heat of the day. Notice, that's an interesting point. It's late summer, right? So it's, it's, I mean, it's brutal out there. But right around 5 o'clock, things start to, you know, breeze kicks in. And these guys walk in with their knives and they're cutting off the grapes, like enjoying the, the cool air. And then, and then they end up with an, a full day's wage. The text goes on. I love, um, I love the, uh, the, the response. Blinder's like, well, didn't you agree for Denarius? I and mean, wasn't that the deal? We made a deal, right? How can you be upset about that? And uh, there, I, I do disagree with this translation. Is your eye evil because I am good? It's very literal, but this is an idiom in Greek. Um, and it, it, you can use it in a lot of different situations. But uh, the idea meaning, being that like, um, you have the wrong reaction, the evil eye, to something that's good. So in this case, the wrong reaction is what? It's jealousy. It's bitterness, resentment. And what's good is, is, is the landowner's generosity. Right? And so the, a better, I would, I would say a better translation would be like, oh, are you jealous because I'm generous? Are you resentful because I'm gracious? Just for a second. Because, look, there's no doubt that this is totally unfair from the perspective of the workers. I mean, if this happened, we would be, well, it's horrible. But the problem for us is that we quickly identify with the workers, right? Most of us here 
have to work, don't like it. We have bosses who make ridiculous decisions that we disagree with. For those of you who are bosses, you make ridiculous decisions that nobody agrees with. <laughs> and so we very quickly like, start to identify with these poor guys who've been breaking their back. They were there at 6 a.m. What do they look like, though, um, to the, uh, the, the vineyard owner? To the vineyard owner, this is not, this is not like, you know, they're all the dregs of society. These are all the poorest of the poor. They're a bunch of peasants. Every single one of these people, whether they're there at 6 a.m. or 5 p.m. or somewhere in between, they are all people who are basically beggars, who are dependent on his feeding them for, for survival. Think about this. These, these people, they don't, if you're there, if you're one of these laborers, you don't have your own plot of land or you'd be working that. Um, you don't have some other source of income or you sure as heck wouldn't be there all day. These people, every last one of them, are on the verge of starvation and it's only because this guy gives them a job that they have a chance for a better life. From the perspective of the landowner, the CEO, he's looking out and he's seeing all these peasants. And he's like, you're near my land. Somehow you ended up here. And I don't want to see your family starve. I want to see you have a chance for good things. And so I'm going to hire you. Does he really need these laborers? Well, if he's a uh, successful vinter, he has his own servants, probably oodles of them, not to mention a very large family, a brood of strapping young lads who are available at any time to go and, and pick grapes. Would he be able to accomplish as much as he does with a bunch of day laborers? No, but he'd probably be okay. If he's not too concerned about turning a huge profit, he could probably just survive off of what he and his household could gather. In fact, in most cases in Israel at the time, it was a household took care of itself. They didn't actually hire out that much. In fact, the very idea of hiring out is probably uh, an example of him looking around and taking pity on all the people who are about to die. And so here are all these people who are just a day or two away from not putting food on the table, and they're jostling with each other to say, who's the coolest? Who's the most valuable? Who's the most honorable? I'm better than you. In the next thing in your note sheets, um, one of the tough things for uh, religious people as far as the kingdom of God goes, is that religious people are treated equally with quote-unquote sinners. Um, I I put sinners in quotes because, uh, you know, the the people who are there at 6 a.m., the good, honest, hardworking Jews are looking at the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the Gentiles. They're like, you're awful. But really, they're all kind of awful. They just don't know it. They're just as dependent, just as needy as the tax collectors and sinners. But they've gotten to a point where they've forgotten that. 
And I say the kingdom because this is the mark of the kingdom. This is, this is all the history of Israel has been leading up to this moment when the Messiah comes and brings the kingdom in its fullness. And what he does when he, when he brings the kingdom in its fullness is he drops the mask. It seemed like God's been like doing this whole, I work hard, you work hard, we have a deal going, covenant with Israel, you work for me, I will take care of you. He drops the mask at the end and he says, guess what? I don't even really, I don't care that you're working that hard. Like, that's not my, you don't understand, I'm not here, I'm not here to, to, to make you like, to, this, this isn't really a deal. You've forgotten that you needed me and so I, took care of you, but I don't really need you. And, and I'm seeing all these other people who you've left behind, who you've ignored, and I'm like, I want to feed them too. I want them to have a good thing too. I'm, I don't need your stuff. I don't need your work. I don't need you to make all these sacrifices and do all these things just right and cut this. And that. It doesn't, that, that wasn't the point of all of that. The law wasn't there to show you exactly what you, know, you needed to do to make me happy. That's not what it was for. And you've mistaken that. And so now, when people who, <laughs> who get that, because they're like, well, I don't, have a ho- I don't have a hope in Hades of actually, look, prostitutes are not able to abide by the Mosaic law. It just doesn't work. Or tax collectors or Gentiles. He's saying, you're grumbling, you're jealous because you've forgotten that you were destitute. And yet, it's almost impossible for us to kind of get into that mindset. There are actually two types of people. There are two types of people who, who listen to this parable and who hear it explained. And, and the first type of people are like, yeah, totally. That makes sense. That's because they know that they are prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. People who self-identify as a prostitute, tax collector, or sinner hear this and are like, whew, I'm just glad to be in the kingdom. Because... I didn't have a hope. I, I, these are people who, uh, you know, in our context, are people who've done terrible things and are aware of it. They made some big mistakes in life, hurt a lot of people. And they, they look at their lives and they're like, uh, you're going to let me in? Wow, that's awesome. And so when they see God lavish his grace on other people, they're like, sweet, that's gravy. Because they're, just glad to be there. And there are people in this congregation today, I know because I've heard your stories. I know that there are people in this congregation today who really do have some baggage that you carry with you. Some things that, um, if you're honest, even now, even to this day, you still deeply regret. Circumstances, things that you've done, things that have been done to you that have wounded you very deeply or you've wounded others very deeply. And you are just glad that you can come here and know that God loves you. And for you, you hear this and you're like, yeah, Amen. Bring them all in. Bring them in. Far and sundry. It doesn't matter who they are. If they can experience half of what I've experienced, that's awesome. When you see somebody who just doesn't deserve it, get something really great, you're like, woohoo! The world is just a little bit better than it used to be. And then there's the rest of us. Here at work, remember, the boss is crazy, does things that no one agrees with. He looks at Sally and says, Sally, you've been very punctual. A promotion for you. And Bill is like, I'm so much better than Sally. 
Where's my promotion? You watch um, uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines on HGTV. And you look at, if you guys don't know, the, 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 kid, the ones from Waco who like make houses. It's a sick thing because you watch that show and you realize how terrible your marriage is. It's like, I, it really is. It's like, it's basically watching like the happily ever after from a Disney film. It's like, Chip, Chip's like, hey, I'm the greatest human being ever. And Joanna's like, I know. And then they make out. You're like, what? I thought this show was about like renovations for houses. Probably responsible for more divorces than any show on television. You're like, you're like, you're like, seeing them just just makes me mad that they have something good. When I should have something good, I deserve it. I I deserve to have what they're getting. I am mad. Uh, the, the, the right way to, an, to end the sermon is to say, well, what you really need to do is recognize that you are a worm. And if you just recognize how destitute and in need of God's grace you are, then, then suddenly you're just going to start to feel good and be happy for people. That's not true. Like, I mean, I've tried it. It doesn't work. Like, you can, you can remember all you want. Like, what a bad person you are. And you're still going to be mad when there's people who get stuff that you think you deserve. I do think, though, that there is a, um, a solution for those of us who, who still, when we see grace happen, it just bothers us. Because we're like, dude, I've been, I've been working hard, man. Where's my raise? Where's my perfect marriage? You know, where, where's my group of amazing friends? And it, it may be counterintuitive, but uh, really, I think that what's going on there is that at a fundamental level, we are people who are unsettled with ourselves. We are people who, um, we carry something that is uh, just not right. We're not settled into a place of joy and contentment in our lives. We're not. If you're sitting around mad at everyone else's success and fortune, I guarantee you, at the same time, you're very dissatisfied with your own sense of joy, your own sense of contentment. You're, you're feeling like my life isn't the way it ought to be. And so when someone else's is, it's like... <sighs> and if we're really honest and, and we, we just get past all of the... Think of yourself as a worm stuff. And we're, and we're honest about what that means. It means that what we really, if you really want to be the kind of person who celebrates grace, who is joyful about other people's success, who really does love to see God do good things, even if people you think are terrible, if you want to be that person, then you have to be a person who fundamentally has joy and contentment with who you are before God and before people. And if you don't, you have to address that. And that's really, really hard. Because when you're addressing that, when you're really honest about the things in your life that cause discontentment, that, that steal your joy, look, all of them, it's going to come down to stuff like money, it's going to come down to sex, it's going to come down to honor, it's going to come down to status, it's going to come down to all the things that we don't like to talk about at cocktail parties. Because that's the real things that are inside us that are messed up. But here's the deal. If you do come to a place where you're looking at your life and you're not sitting around like, I need more, I really am content with what I have, then you won't be mad when someone else gets something good. 
If you are in a place where you have joy, knowing that you are serving God as he desires, you are part of his plan, you are doing what he's called you to do, then you're not going to be upset when somebody else is like, man, I'm loving life. If you want to stop hating Chip and Joanna Gaines, you're going to have to do some really hard work with your own spouse. If you want to stop hating Sally for getting the raise, you're going to have to start being honest about what you want out of your career and your finance. You have to talk to your significant others about that. These are like, these are these grinding things that are so difficult for us to deal with because we really just want to maintain the status quo. When we do maintain that status quo, we find ourselves just unable to have joy and happiness and contentment when other people have it. I speak uh, here from personal experience. There was a time in my life where I hated church people. I really did. Because every week I came to church, when I came to church, and, and, and everyone was like so chipper. And I was like, I was just like miserable. I mean, a various combination of things. My life not going the way that I wanted it to, um, some mental health issues, and just a general sense of being a jerk. Um, all sort of combined to cause me to hate you. And I look back at those wasted years and I think, what would it have been like if instead I was just at peace with who God made me, where I was, and what he was doing? If instead I could have just been to a place where I was okay in my own skin, recognizing that he's the, the vineyard owner, I'm just a laborer, I don't know what time of day I'm coming in, but, but just one of his people, and just be okay with that. And over time, that actually started to settle in me without me knowing, because God does amazing things, and God is much more gracious than we deserve. And, and slowly over time, I, I found myself less and less angry. I didn't know why. I found myself um, loving more and more, and it, it never occurred to me that it was because I was just letting God let me be me and be okay with that and have joy in him and celebrate his wins and have contentment with what he handed me. If you can come to that place, then it doesn't matter how long and how hard you've been working. Every time you see another hooker and another cheat, and another sloppy barbarian, weirdo, whatever. Whenever you see them transformed and made right in grace, you're like, man, that's awesome. God really is good. I'm experiencing his kingdom right now. And this, this moment of redemption is going to be what it's like for eternity when we're with him forever. Don't begrudge grace. Instead, live in your joy. Let's pray. Gracious God, I just pray that um, when people come here, they'll see a church filled with 
with joy. People who are excited and just happy to see you work. People who aren't concerned with who's got the status and who's the best and who's um, more valuable than, than others and who has more honor and who's richer and who's poorer and who's uh, more disciplined and, and, and just none of that, God. Instead, just joy seeing you at work in our lives, seeing every move you make to transform and empower us, just, just being in love with that, joyful, celebratory. God, make us a people who just are so much enjoying you and the life that you give us that we have no time for jealousy, bitterness, division, resentment. And let this place be a little mini instance of your kingdom as we wait for you to return and establish it in full. We love you, God. We love you, Jesus. You've made us right in your eyes through your pain, through the cross, and through the resurrection. We claim that one people before you now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.